Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good, warm. Yeah, how are you guys doing with this heat? It's miserable. I mean, I've been here 40 plus years, and I'm pretty much done with this. But I'm content in all situations, so we'll be all right. We'll be all right. It's another six, eight, 12 weeks. It's going to cool off for a month before it heats back up. So praise God for the cool weather when it comes. Uh, Let's pray one more time before we jump into the text this morning. Father God, we worship you this morning. We are humbled by the love you've shown us in Jesus Christ. God, not because of anything we have done or anything we ever will do, but because you are a gracious and loving God. God, shape us this morning through your word and by your spirit that we might reflect the love that we have experienced from you to the world. Amen. All right. Well, if you've been around, you know we are kicking off the book of Philippians, new series walking through Paul's letter to the Philippian church. But our text for today is actually not from Philippians. We're going to begin our study in the book of Acts, which talks about how Paul got to Philippi in the first place and how the church began. And Acts chapter 16 is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture because it it gives us a window into how these Philippian believers became the mature, faithful, tremendously loving community that Paul cares for so much. Because They didn't just wake up one morning and have this deep love and care for God and for one another. That's that's not how it works. It was a culture that had to be shaped and grown and fostered. It was something that had to be fought for. And what we see in Acts 16 that I believe made this community so amazing was first that that the sovereign power of God was directing every aspect of the planting of this church. God was powerfully at work in supernatural ways, but what we also see is the tremendous diversity of people God used. Different personalities, economic backgrounds, different gifts that God drew together to build his church. And this picture of the church in Acts 16 has long shaped my hope for this community. So that's where we're headed this morning. So if you want to just open to Acts 16, we're going to jump around. And as you know, Paul wrote this letter and he wasn't always the Jesus-loving, church-planting, letter-writing apostle that we meet in Scripture or in Philippians. He had a pretty speckled past He was a rough dude. 
And he had his entire life flipped upside down by Jesus, right? Because Paul, before Jesus, he was a complete mess. He was so zealous and so sure of himself that he killed those who didn't believe like him. He was an arrogant, murderous monster. But Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when I say encounter Jesus, this was not a warm, fuzzy encounter. Paul didn't have an encounter with feel-good buddy Jesus, right? Blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy, six-foot-two, walks around just hugging and affirming everyone. That's not who he met. He met the risen King Jesus, the Lion of Judah. And Paul would tell you that the real Jesus of Scripture can be a bit more assertive at times, especially with stubborn people. You see, Jesus loved Paul so much that he was willing to bring Paul to his knees and blind him in order that Paul might truly see. That was the nature of Paul's encounter with Jesus. And this is encouraging because many of our lives honestly are a mess. A lot of folks in this room have rough pasts and are struggling with some big things even right now. And when these past sins or struggles bubble up, you may ask yourself, can God really love someone like me? Can God really use someone like me? Whether those struggles are anger or greed, anxiety, depression, addiction, lust, whatever. The answer we see from Paul's life and throughout scripture is a resounding yes. Paul, in his own words, was the worst of sinners. But God saved Paul and God called Paul for a purpose. But everything had to change. Paul had to die so that he might live. Because when Jesus meets us and calls us to himself, he gives us a new identity. He gives us a new purpose. Paul went from lead persecutor to lead proclaimer of the gospel. He went from imprisoning believers of Christ to being imprisoned for Christ. Paul's new agenda, the call that God had placed on his life was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and to plant churches. And so all of these churches Paul planted in letters that he sent were a result of God's sovereign and gracious encounter with Paul. And as we'll see this morning, this same sovereign, powerful, loving God was with Paul throughout his ministry. So turn to Acts 16. This is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And if you know Acts, just before leaving on this journey, Paul and Barnabas were having a pretty sharp disagreement, a tiff. They weren't seeing eye to eye. It was this first century personality conflict going on, and we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks, but they decided to split off and head different directions. So Barnabas took John Mark, they headed to Cyprus, while Paul and Silas headed north through Syria. And what I love is that these guys were on mission for Jesus. Sounds so good. They were on mission for Jesus, but they didn't have a clue where they were going. Don't you love that? They thought they did. 
They headed north through Syria and then west across Galatia, probably thinking we're going to hit all these cities, presuming they're going to stop somewhere in Asia Minor, but they didn't. Acts 16, 6 through 10 says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here's what's going on. The, the Spirit keeps driving them west. Like they think, hey, we're going we're gonna to preach here, we're going to preach here. And the Spirit keeps driving them, forbidding them to speak the word in Asia. So they're like, okay, not Asia. Let's go north to Bithynia. And the Spirit's like, still wrong. No. Bad idea. It had to be frustrating. They traveled across the entire continent to the edge of the sea on mission with, for Jesus, and they still didn't know where they were going. It was like, there's water. Let's go to sleep. And that's what they did. I mean, obviously, God could have told them exactly where they were headed, right? He can do that. But it's almost like not knowing sometimes is part of this faith thing we're called to, Right? He didn't tell them where. Do you ever feel like these guys probably felt? Like you're walking with God and trying to be faithful, but things just don't seem to be working out how you think they should work out? Things just keep seeming to fail. Is it possible God is saying, trust me? Trust me? Like these are the apostles. The guys who spoke Scripture, right? God spoke through them to give us the word. These guys founded the church and they're like, we don't know where we're going. It's encouraging. I can't tell you the number of times over the past 11 years myself and the elders have come to some challenge or situation and been like, we don't have any idea what direction we're going. We don't, we don't know what to do. And then we decide what we're going to do, and the Spirit's like, nuh-uh, wrong. So we do something else. No, that's not it either. Over and over. So I guess we're in good company, sometimes not knowing. And then in verse 9, as they're sitting in this port city of Troas, it's like, okay, let's sleep here because there's an ocean. We can't go any further west. Paul has this vision. Come over to Macedonia and help us. So they may not have known the plan, may not have known where they were going, but God did. The Spirit was directing them. He led them to the port city and said, all right, guys, get on a boat. Get on a boat. And they did. They sailed across the Aegean Sea, traveled through Neapolis, and came to the city of Philippi. It's a Roman colony and a leading city in the district of Macedonia. And what Luke is going to do now is kind of show us how this Philippian church plan began. He shows us that God uses very ordinary people to build his church, and he uses very diverse people to build his church. And we get to see how God engages different people in very different ways. 
In verse 13, we read that on the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to the riverside where they supposed there was a place of prayer. So here's what's going on. They're in a new city and thinking, let's go find the religious people. That's what they would always do. They would go to the synagogue, but because there were not enough godly men in the city, there was no synagogue. So they went outside the gate to the river where customarily you would find the godly men worshiping. And what did they find? No godly men. It's been a church problem for a long time, right? There were no godly men in the city. They find a group of religious women. And there's this woman named Lydia among them. And the text says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So who is this woman, Lydia? We know her name. We know that she was from the city called Thyatira. So ethnically, she's Asian. Economically, she has a business in Thyatira, but a house in Philippi, which means she got money. Not only that, the text says that she's a seller of purple goods, which means she makes clothing for royalty. So in short, Lydia was an Asian woman who was the CEO of a multinational clothing company for royalty. We call her the boss. That's Lydia. So Paul begins to talk with her, and she said that she was a worshiper of God, which means that she was a Gentile who believed in Judaism. She was spiritual, but still searching. She was like so many Americans because of her economic status. She had climbed the ladder of success, checked the boxes, reached the goals, and she was religious. But that satisfaction was still elusive. So how does Paul engage Lydia? He has a spiritual discussion with her. He has a Bible study. He probably walked through creation and the law and the prophets and told her about Jesus. And the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart through her mind, through hearing and understanding the word. Then she and her whole household were baptized. So there's our first member of the Philippian church plant. Then in, in verse 16, we read, then on another day, as the disciples were going to the place of prayer, which now they were doing daily, they had an encounter with this slave girl. And we read that this slave girl had a spirit of divination. And she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So we don't know her name, but she was likely Greek. So economically, she was a slave. Spiritually, off the deep end. She was both physically a slave to this pagan temple and spiritually a slave being tormented by demonic spirits. And when the text says that she had the spirit of divination, the Greek word here literally means the spirit of Python. And in the Greek city of Delphi, there was this huge temple to the goddess of Python, or the goddess Python was her name. And there was a guy that sat outside known as the Oracle of Delphi. And you can read about this guy in first century writings. He was like the real deal when it comes to psychics or fortune telling. 
There are people who have the ability to do this, and it is not a gift. It is demonic. And this girl had that gift, or to be more clear, had that curse. She was a slave to a pagan demonic temple who told fortunes through demonic means to make money for those whom she was enslaved to. It was a horrible situation. So this slave girl who had been sold or abandoned had the spirit of Python. And each day when the apostles walked by this woman, she would taunt them. Until one day, the text says, Paul got greatly annoyed. (laughs) Right? He looked with compassion. He loved her. No, he got annoyed. He was annoyed. And I love this. God is about to work miraculously through Paul's annoyance. Even Paul got annoyed. And so he turns to her and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Because you're annoying. That part, I added that. That's not in the scripture. But it was before. In that very hour, she was freed from her slavery to these demonic powers. That's crazy, right? Way different than Lydia. Way different. Paul didn't crack open his Bible and start talking theology with his slave girl. He didn't engage her through her mind, but through a powerful encounter in the spiritual realm. Reminds me of Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If we truly grasp the spiritual darkness and power at work in our community and in this world, I can assure you we'd be more fervent in prayer. If we knew the spiritual forces at work, if we understood the power that we've been promised for this battle, we would be a people of prayer. The truth is most of us are far more comfortable with a Lydia-type encounter than we are the slave girl, right? People like to relegate the spiritual battle to entertaining kids' stories like Harry Potter. But the spiritual battle is real. And I firmly believe that in God's sovereign wisdom, he created and gifted some of us to engage the struggles of Christian life and faith more through our minds. And others are far more in tune with the spiritual forces in this world. Some resonate with with Lydia, while others will resonate with this slave girl. And we still have one more member of our core team to meet. We're two-thirds of the way there. After Paul casts out this evil spirit, the owners of the slave girl freak out. Paul just cost them a lot of money. And they get so angry, they incite a riot, and they have Paul and Silas thrown into jail. And this is where we meet the third member of our core team for the Philippian church plant. Paul and Silas were beaten given to the jailer who was instructed by the magistrates to keep them safely. So he placed them in the inner prison, in the dungeon, and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they are chained to the wall. And then in verse 26 and 20, 25 and 26, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, which is crazy, right? Chained to the wall in the inner prison. 
praying and singing hymns. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So God sends an earthquake, sets them all free. And this jailer wakes up, and he sees the, the cell doors are open, and the prisoners unchained, and he grabs his sword to kill himself. He's about to kill himself. Because either these prisoners are going to kill him or they're going to get away and the magistrates will kill him. Right? All he sees is hopelessness. He's about to die. So taking his own life was the best option this guy could think of. So we have this Roman jailer. He's a blue-collar guy. Spiritually, he's probably not all that interested because he tortures people for a living. Economically, he's probably lower middle class, likely living paycheck to paycheck. So how does God engage this jailer? God engaged Lydia through her mind. He engaged the slave girl through a powerful spiritual encounter. And now God is going to engage this jailer through his heart, through an act of mercy. This jailer is just about to kill himself. And Paul's like, bro, hold up. Don't do that. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Nobody's left. And there was this instantaneous shift. This jailer had probably listened to Paul and Silas singing hymns about a loving God with bitterness in his heart. It's like that God doesn't exist. But then he experienced that love and that mercy. And verse 29 says, The jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And in that same hour, he took them out and washed their wounds, and then he and his whole family were baptized. See, this man had never seen anyone who didn't trade evil for evil. But through this encounter, his heart was moved by this powerful experience of love and mercy. He's the third member of our church plant in Philippi. So we have the CEO... We have the demon-infested slave girl, and we have a blue-collar jailer who tortures people for a living. That sounds like a power team, right? What a church plant. You couldn't have three more diverse people. It's almost as though God intended it to be this way. It's crazy. And so when we come to the book of Philippians, Paul is writing this letter to a church that's now 10 years old. 10 years old. And here are the powerful, encouraging words that Paul pronounces over these believers in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Right? And we're watching how it began. In this book that's primarily about fighting for joy, joy in the midst of suffering, Joy in the midst of sin and doubt and pain. Paul says, remember who your God is. Remember who you were when I called you. 
by the riverside, on the street, from the jail. He began the work, and he will bring it to completion. It is God who builds his church, and it is God who sustains his church, and he will bring it to completion. And so there are two overarching truths that stick out to me when I read the story of the Philippian church plan. We see God's sovereignty, and we see God's intentionality. And the sovereignty of God is the foundation of Scripture. We talk about it all the time. A Christian is first and foremost a work of God, not a work of ourselves. This is what distinguishes the gospel from all other religions. The gospel is about what the creator God has done to purchase our redemption. What he has done to reach us. Religion is about what we do to reach God. And this is what we see throughout Acts as God orchestrates this intricate plan to bring his glory and salvation to the city of Philippi. Through personality conflicts, confusion, riverside prayer groups, annoyed apostles, and some jail time. Through some of the most insane circumstances. But what we see time and again, through some of the hardest, most broken situations, God is saying, watch what I can do with the brokenness of humanity. Watch how I can redeem even the darkest of hearts and situations. I'm God. Watch what I can do. And we need to remember this. We need to meditate on this because our life is not a book. It's not a letter that we can jump to the end and see how it finishes. We don't get to see the conclusion immediately. We're given these stories in Scripture to remind us of who our God is, to remind us of what he has promised us. In those moments when things seem crazy or chaotic, when we're trying to be faithful but don't know where to go, all of these trials and struggles and confusion are not the absence of God. We may be exactly where God has us, in the midst of crazy circumstances through which God will act powerfully. When our eyes are open to the reality that nothing happens apart from God, that nothing surprises God, that he is working even when things seem hopeless, we can find joy in the midst of struggle. When we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we will take joy in knowing that our struggles and our confusion are part of his plan of redemption in the world. It is God who began the good work in you, and it is God who will bring it to completion. So we see God's sovereignty through this text in our lives, but we also see his intentionality. These three unique individuals we meet in Acts 16 are not they were not haphazardly chosen. They were intentionally engaged by God through different means for the health and the growth of the church. To give us a glimpse of what God is doing in the world. 
These three individuals, Lydia, the slave woman, and the jailer, have been seared in my brain for so many years as as we have planted and shepherded this community. Because these three people represent essential aspects of the Christian life. Lydia represents right thinking and understanding. The slave girl represents the spiritual battle that's being waged. And and the jailer represents acts of love that are the fruit of faithfulness. But what we've done in modern Christianity is pitted these things against one another. We have entire denominations and churches gathering around one of these attributes of the Christian life. The intellectuals want to hang out with a bunch of other intellectuals and talk about how smart they are. The people in tune with the spiritual world want to hang out with spirity people and talk about what the spirit's doing. And the hard-driven people want to gather in a big circle and just love each other really well. But what the modern church seems to miss so often is that these gifts were intended to be used together in community. Not to create division, but to grow and temper one another to encourage one another to reflect the glory of our God. Ephesians 3, 9 and 10 says, God created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Manifold, expansive. No one person or gifting can make known the manifold wisdom of God. It is only through a diversity of people and gifts all united by the blood of Jesus that we together can reflect the glory of our God. Not just through knowledge. Not just through spiritual encounters. Not just through acts of love. But together, the church as a whole proclaims the glory of God. And if you're sitting here, you probably lean one of these three ways. And that's awesome. But God gave you all of these other folks, all of these other people who see things differently and think differently than you for your good, for your upbuilding, for the growth of his church. And so my prayer is that we would see this. That God gave us people with different gifts and different backgrounds and different life experiences to help us represent his glory more fully. That our differences are not points of divergence, but the very thing that makes us strong. Because no matter how different we are or how unique our gifts, we've been united by the blood of Jesus. That is a bond that cannot be broken. So as Lydia sat by the river in the place of prayer, longing for a spirituality that captivated her soul, knowing that there had to be more to life than what she knew, there had to be more to God than laws and rituals, as she sat by the river praying, God's plan to draw her to himself was at work. And as the slave girl was daily tormented by the evil spirits that consumed her soul. And as she was tormented by her oppressors. In the midst of a life of subjection and evil and hopelessness, God had a plan to draw her 
to himself. And as the jailer went about his daily routine of torture and oppression, so, so accustomed to inflicting pain and death that his heart had grown cold and hard, God was moving towards him with abundant love, preparing to show him the depth of his love for him, to draw him into his mercy and to give him a new heart. And as awesome as these three stories are, God was not just healing individuals. He was uniting individuals to be one people. They each came with unique gifts and unique struggles that God would use to build his church. In the midst of pain and confusion and darkness, God's plan of redemption is at work. You may not see it. You may not see how losing a job or the death of a friend or the daily struggles of raising children serves his purposes. But the promise of scripture is that God is active. He is working. His immeasurable love is at work in ways that we cannot comprehend. We'll never know exactly how God works in every situation. But joy is found when we trust in the reality that he is sovereign over every situation. He has brought us together for a reason. And that he is using people from every walk of life. That he is redeeming people from the darkest of sin. And he is engaging minds and spirits and hearts through powerful encounters with Jesus. For the glory of his name and for the good of the church. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that through your sovereign love, you are working all things together for good. Though we cannot always see it or understand it, God, we ask that you would increase our faith so that we would trust in your promises. knowing that you will bring your good work in us to completion. And God, we ask that you would continue to grow your church in love and in grace. God, that we would see our differences and diversity as a gift. As your grace on this church to equip us all as one people for the gospel mission to which you've called us. To the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.